0: Episode 4, King of the Narrow Sea, referring to Damon's New Kingdom, begins at a site which rests on the Narrow Sea, Storm's End. It's very windy, and we see Rainier flanked by Lord Borman Baratheon and Sir Criston Cole, looking like she's had quite enough. Though her father gave her leeway to choose a husband and provided her with the opportunity to meet many prospective suitors all at once to minimize travel, it's not going well. The most impressive suitor, Willem Blackwood, kills Gerald of the arch rival House Bracken in a quick impromptu duel after being insulted several times. Willem is either a replacement for Samwell Blackwood, who is bloody Ben's father, or he's simply Sam's brother and Ben's uncle. Either way, this isn't the last of this rivalry we'll see. Willem is far younger than Princess Rhaenyra, and the killing doesn't make him a man in her eyes, it would seem. And it's her eyes we're most concerned with in this scene and several others. The episode is notable for portraying a number of events through a feminine perspective, and the episode was directed by Claire Kilmer. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me Adam. Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Several scenes that could have easily come out as rather exploitative were shown as experiential. Claire Kilner also directed Episodes 5 and 9. Music seems to play a more prominent role in this episode than in any other this season so far, with a number of moving pieces adding great weight to the mood and tension. Some of them are variations on themes from the original Game of Thrones, a pattern we're seeing here with House of the Dragon, and it's spectacular. Rainier is fed up with the unserious offers for her hand in marriage. Not only are there boys, but much older men like Lord Beric Dondarrion, who once met her great-grandmother, good Queen Alysanne, as it turns out, House Dondarrion and House Blackwood will both eventually get their wish and marry into House Targaryen. Decades from now, Jenna Dondarrion will marry Prince Baelor Breakspear, hero of the Blackfyre Rebellion, and Betha Blackwood, a.k.a. Black Betha, will marry none other than Egg, who will go on to become Aegon V. Egg and Betha and their children are responsible for a ton of cool and tragic stories, and Daenerys is their great-grandchild. Davos' Seaworth's ship is called Black Betha, but it gets wildfired at the Blackwater while boarding an enemy ship called White Heart, which of course also burns. This is ominous since Aegon V was responsible for the wildfire disaster at Summerhall, which killed so many members of House Targaryen, and quite possibly Black Betha too. Fittingly with that in mind, family is emphasized in this episode, which focuses on the adult members of the House of the Dragon by birth or marriage, the king, the prince, the princess, and the queen, with many other historical Targaryens dating back to the Doom mentioned throughout. Speaking of that fiery cataclysm, another theme of the episode is plans gone awry, often to the point of backfire completely, often while mixed up with these prominent family affairs. None of the men gathered will be joining the family. Rainier cuts the bloody husband tour short and heads home. This proves to be dramatic timing as it coincides with Damon's victorious return from the Stepstones, wearing a new crown, and bearing the hammer of the crab feeder. In doing so, he quite literally rocks the boat she's on. Rather straightforward symbolism when you notice it, but the ripple effect of his waves will be well beyond even what Damon intended or otherwise had in mind. Perhaps that's implied by Damon causing her to hit her head on the railing. He probably didn't intend for the woman he was about to seduce to be cross with him for a bruise on the forehead. Perhaps this tells us that his plan lacks nuance and subtlety. Notably, the jolt also causes Kristen Cole to take her in hand, foreshadowing where she ends up later in the episode with much greater significance. Viserys wants to believe his brother has changed, and perhaps he has, but if so, it's for the worse. At first, Prince Daemon's return helps catalyze realm and family towards unity, but that very quickly reverses course, and his actions turn the king and queen and others against him, while the princess is powerless to protest her uncle's exile, and loses the right to choose her husband, a right granted so recently at the end of episode 3, in fact. Now she's to be married to Sir Lannor Velaryon, son of the Sea Snake, and the Queen Who Never Was. Assuming they accept, they've already agreed to betroth their daughter Lena, whom Viserys turned down, to the Sea Lord of Braavos' son. The Sea Lord of Braavos has been a dangerous foe to the Iron Throne many times in the past, given their huge fleet and friendly terms with both the Iron Bank and the Faceless Men. One example is the Sea Lord who took in Daenerys and Viserys before the start of Game of Thrones, which ended up being a big problem for the Iron Throne too. Any potential threat made by Lena's marriage to the Sea Lord of Braavos' the son would be eliminated by a marriage to the Iron Throne, as that would even things out again. Amidst these shifting alliances, much is made of perception over reality and how that can impact trust and certainty. As we heard through the king's explanation, whether Rhaenyra hooked up with her uncle is less important than whether people think she did. Though she lost the right to choose her husband, she showed herself powerful enough to demand the firing of Sir Otto Hightower, or at least her argument against him was powerful enough. A king must be able to trust their hand absolutely, and Otto's reputation, though once seemingly impeccable, grew to be compromised over time. Viserys had come to realize that he sent his daughter to him when he was vulnerable. He loves Alicent and his new children, but resents having been taken advantage of. On top of that, the king notes that there will always be a nagging suspicion that whatever Otto is doing, whatever advice he offers, it's in service of his grandson's claim to the Iron Throne. A king can and must do better than that. Surely there's someone less compromised, more worthy of trust. All that is what Rhaenyra impressed upon her father, and he saw it her way. On the opposite end, Otto's daughter, Alicent, has consistently tried to be the glue within their small family while playing entirely by the rules. It's like she's been trying to emulate the Targaryen whose name is most similar to hers, good Queen Alicent. She's disgusted by Prince Daemon, both for his disloyalty to her husband, her friend Rhaenyra, and his own general disregard for rules. She proves willing to believe her former best friend's version of events as long as the prince's influence is removed. Her husband, the king, didn't exactly need convincing on that front, though he did need convincing on the matter of Rhaenyra's version of events. Allison once again stood up for her friend's rights over that of her own children. In keeping with the theme of backfirings, however, Damon's removal coincides with her own father's removal, something she may feel guilt and or resentment over afterwards, even though she clearly has problems with how her father manipulated her, too. Because while he may be a sketchy father, he's a powerful ally to her at court, Potentially worse is that she was already lonely and isolated, and we can suppose that might get worse now. It is illustrated a few times, one when Rhaenyra makes a comment about being trapped in a castle only to make airs before realizing she's just described Alicent and apologizes softly. Two when Viserys calls her to his bed late at night. She really doesn't want to, but in a stirring sign of how committed she is to her dismal duty as queen, she consents. She tries to put on a brave smile, but has trouble keeping it up and difficulty looking him in the eye. Though despite her understandable disgust, she also personally helps tend the very deteriorations to his body that make him so undesirable in the first place. To her, he's still more appealing than Damon. Amidst the theme of family, a huge number of famous Targaryens are named. A veritable Easter of dragon eggs. In addition to San, there's mention of her husband, the old King the I, himself, who we saw in the very first scene of the show... Viserys tells Rhaenyra that he would have disinherited her over these rumors, a reference to how harshly he had handled the many scandals surrounding Viserys' aunts. It seems that, despite their Valyrian heritage, the Targaryens have been very conscious of the ideals of the Seven when it comes to marriage and womanhood. In other words, highly restrictive and patriarchal. Worse than what we're seeing now, actually. Also mentioned in detail is Prince Balon, second son of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, and the father of both Viserys and Daemon, and rider of Vhagar. He was hand for a short time, but died of a burst belly, which probably means an infected ulcer. His wife, their mother, who isn't named, but we know as Alyssa, was the rider of Melis, the Red Queen. Now the dragon of the queen who never was. In bringing her up, Viserys channels the classic comedic duo the Smothers Brothers by repeating over and over that Mom liked Damon best. True or not, she seemed to have more in common with Damon at least. Strong and quick with a warrior spirit. This mention of their mother Alyssa comes during the very brief portion of the episode when the Targaryen brothers are without conflict. It takes very little time for that to collapse again, though. Damon uses his knowledge of the Red Keep's secret passages and a plan to win Rhaenyra over and marry her. He later tells Viserys that he aims to restore the House of the Dragon to its former glory, and there's no one better to defend her claim than him. It's surprisingly eloquent for a man who seemingly went on the mother of all benders, but a vicious hangover is the least of the consequences. Rhaenyra begins to feel insecure in her role as heir after Daemon shows her what the common folk think. While playing the Game of Thrones Bachelorette edition, she's only been exposed to men who are telling her what they think she wants to hear, with flattery and promises and dragon pits in the offing. In this episode, for one, she hears what people are saying when they don't know she's listening, and she sees that it's not just talk, but actual performances. And though she tries to dismiss them as people of low station, Damon tells her they cannot and should not be dismissed. Damon may have been trying to scare her into thinking she needed him to help secure her claim. In his mind, seducing her would have made her an ally against the king in arguing that their match was a good idea. He may have also hoped that she became pregnant, which in turn would have forced Viserys to accept the match, maybe, and if so, would have been quickly before anyone found out. But of course, that part definitively backfired, as we're given a repeat of Damon's erectile dysfunction from episode one. He goes from heavy petting and kissing to slamming his hands on the wall in frustration, completely surprising Rhaenyra, who has no idea of his issues. She's quite confused, a bit new to all this in the first place, but he's far too ashamed and proud to explain. In the the behind-the-scenes, they say he's feeling guilty about what he's doing. He knows it's wrong. Of course, the princess doesn't get to watch those HBO featurettes for an explanation and just chalks it up to his general mercurial nature and too much to drink. But she's still quite turned on. From one forbidden fruit to another, from Uncle to Kingsguard, it goes... Kristen briefly resists, and notice him folding his white cloak sort of resigned, the symbol of the vows he's about to dishonor. Just to be clear, what Kristen Cole's doing on a symbolic level, the Lord Commander who just died, the one he replaced, not as Lord Commander, but as a new member of the Kingsguard, was Sir Riam Redwine, who discovered Sir Lucamore Strong sneakily having 16 kids with three different women. You're not supposed to do that as a Kingsguard. He was gelded before switching his white cloak for Night's Watch Black. Sir Ryan was a paragon of virtue who was in the Kingsguard for some 40 years, including a long stint as Lord Commander and a short stint as Hand. That's who Cole is replacing, and Kristen spends the rest of the episode unable to meet her gaze. Even though Damon didn't actually have relations with Renier, he doesn't try to convince his brother of that. It, it wouldn't be believed, and again, he doesn't want to admit what really stopped him. It's a bit like episode one, where he also doesn't want to admit calling the infant prince heir for a day, but likewise doesn't deny it either. Instead, a bit like episode 3, he goes on the assault even when seemingly trapped. Why not marry them, he says. If her standing is reduced by these rumors anyway, why not boost that back up by combining the two branches into one more powerful one? The king does not see the situation the way his brother does, in part because Damon, let's not forget, is already married to Lady Ray Royce. Viserys' fury is such that he puts the prophetic dagger at his neck and orders him gone for good. In episode two, Mazzaria told Damon that as part of securing her independence, she took steps to ensure she'd never be able to have children. That point is emphasized by how so many other women of much higher birth are defined heavily, if not entirely, by their capacity to bear children. Alison and Rhaenyra and others don't know this about Mizaria. Perhaps one day they will. But a major role change has occurred for Mizaria since we last saw her. While Damon was warring in the Stepstones, gaining status, reputation, and a new title, she has climbed the ladder as well, but in a much quieter fashion. Prince Damon's return was to great fanfare and no small amount of trepidation. Her rise wasn't even noticed by her former protector, but it has been noted by Otto Hightower, who has come to rely on her and her sources for information. And it should be intimidating... She clearly has no problem reporting on Damon, and he probably wanted it to be known, even though it didn't have the desired result. He took Rhaenyra's cowl off and his own. They are rather obvious given their hair and all, so of course they were seen. We see her receive a payment from the same boy that reported on Rhaenyra and Damon in the brothel. This is the type of establishment she would have no trouble placing informants given her recent profession. The use of children as spies is a parallel to none other than Varys and his little birds. And with that, though there is no master of whispers on the small council itself, she's pretty much emerged to fill that vacuum in the city and perhaps the story. It's not her official title, of course, but she does have a new nickname, the White Worm. Though with Otto's firing, look for her to sell her services to someone else important. She didn't betray Otto in any way that we know of, but working with her backfired for him all the same. The very act of spying on Rhaenyra in the first place was seen as unseemly for a man in his position as grandfather to Aegon, even if it might be justifiable in his position as Hand, maybe. Very much a play-with-fire-and-get-burn type result, though. Let's not forget that another person witnessed Rhaenyra out and about, one whom you might have missed, and that is Sir Harwin Strong, who had a huge smile for her when she came back bloody with the boar, He's the eldest son of the Master of Laws, Sir Lionel, don't forget, the one who first suggested that Rhaenyra marry Sir Laenor last episode. They're both related to that same Luke Morstrong we just mentioned who was sent to the Wall for violating his Kingsguard oath, though. Harwin is clearly now an officer in the Gold Cloaks, most likely very high ranking because of his birth and station, especially with his father on the small council and all. In Fire and Blood, he's made one of a small number of captains, so perhaps that's what it is here, too. Grandmaster Melos ushers in the final scene of the episode with a tea that will end any potential pregnancies. It could be the same tansy tea that we've heard of before, such as with Rob's Jane Westerling and Lysa Tully, though those two notably did not have any say in the matter. They were tricked into drinking the tea. When confronted about Damon by Allison, she swears on her mother's grave while standing in front of the heart tree that he did not touch her, which is, of course, a lie. And though she did not have sex with Damon, she did have with Kristen Cole... The T ensures she can't be caught unless, of course, Kristen tells, while that would be his word against her, as we've seen in this episode, how much damage words can do. They're quite a bit worse than wins sometimes. Rainier points out the hypocrisy of a prince fathering a bastard, which can be dangerous, yet it is generally acceptable enough. For a princess, it's also dangerous, but completely unacceptable. Unequal, for sure, but true enough, given perception of custom and tradition. The episode reminds us, and her again, that her claim to the throne is tenuous, despite her father's insistence on holding to it. Melos doesn't wait to see if she drinks the tea, ensuring that it is her choice, even if the choice is kind of obvious, to us. But does she see it that way? Hmm. Perhaps, but notably, we don't actually see, one way or the other, whether she drinks it. Further complicating the general imbalance that exists between prince versus princess heirs is the recurring and amazing prophecy storyline. While Viserys doesn't want Rhaenyra to harm their standing in the realm by not upholding traditional behavior standards, he's also concerned with another more important tradition, the passing down of the prophecy of the Song of Ice and Fire. The prophecy aspect combines nicely with the overarching family theme, giving us lore as the most important dagger gets even more backstory. We had wondered if Egon the Conqueror himself had the Dragon's Paw dagger made with the etching or whether it predated him, and the answer turned out to be a bit of both. The dagger has been owned by the family for generations, but the etching is significantly newer. The lore revealed to us readers in prior sources doesn't go back before Aenar the Exile, father of Daenerys the Dreamer, and this is reflected by Viserys telling Rhaenyra that he doesn't know who owned the dagger before Aenar, but that it does go back even farther. He says Aegon the Conqueror had the last Valyrian pyromancers around, who were apparently a higher class of pyromancer than the guilds we see in the time of, say, the Mad King or the Battle of the Blackwater. Aegon ordered these Valyrian pyromancers to carve the prophecy from his dream into the dagger's blade in order to help ensure the secret wasn't lost. Not sure Aegon's plan actually worked, since it seems people forgot about the inscription eventually, after all, but it is cool as hell. And maybe that's the problem, since it needs to be hot as hell for the runes to be seen. That's all for now. Join History of Westeros on YouTube during the season every Monday at 6 Eastern for a much more in-depth but spoiler-free review of each episode. And every 3 p.m. on Saturday as we look ahead to the next episode with spoilers and guests. If you can't make it to the live streams, you can watch or listen to the replays anytime afterwards. They'll also be available wherever you consume podcasts. Alongside our House of the Dragon coverage, you'll find that over the last 10 years, we've created hundreds of other episodes about A Song of Ice and Fire, Fire and Blood, Dunk and Egg, and everything else Westeros, Essos, and beyond, past, present, and future.